0: This episode of The Full Nerd is sponsored by Avast. Avast has been a global leader in cybersecurity for more than 30 years and is trusted by over 435 million users. Avast One is their best protection yet, giving you everything you need to take control of your safety and privacy online and and it's accessible through a single, easy-to-use interface. A free version includes essential features such as free antivirus, free VPN, and free firewall protection, while the premium version has even more advanced protection. Learn more about Avast One at avast.com.
1: In this episode of The Full Nerd, Asus talks Z690 DDR5 concept PCs and more. Welcome to this special episode of the Full Nerd. I'm your host Gordon Maung with a very special guest, JJ Guerrero of ASUS. How you doing, Gordon? Happy to be here. Welcome, and Adam Patrick Murray controlling the vertical and horizontal, of course. Uh, I'm I'm
0: here. I'm ready to talk uh, gear. I, I JJ, we haven't seen you since uh, CES a couple years ago, uh, where we talked about monitors and, and such. That was that was a good that was a good show. Yeah, it's been too long, man. Hopefully, like you said, maybe in the future we'll be able to do it in person. Yeah, well, it's good to have you here. I I will do a quick little plug. I do have... um uh, Avast has been an awesome sponsor for us. This is the last time they're they're sponsoring the Full Nerd. But uh, I actually have a live build tomorrow at uh, 1 p.m. Pacific uh, that you should tune in for, uh, building a, a, a really nice small form factor PC that can fit in your living room and play games on your TV. So I'm excited about it. You should tune in for it. But uh, for now we're
1: here to talk to JJ about some, some awesome gear. Yeah, and you can see JJ's got two Z690 boards next to him. I've got a ProArt here pretty impressive board and um before the show kicked off earlier we were we were, we had been in the industry a long time we were talking about the good old days about but it's just like the motherboards today are just so advanced it's 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 mind-boggling because you, you would think i it's you would think a motherboard would not advance as much as we have with gpus and cpus and everything else in storage but I think back to the early motherboards, especially the the original ROG board that came out what 15 years ago. 15 every years. every time there's some new innovation and it looks like you, you these boards are loaded for beer, you know? hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, you know, um,
2: one of the kind of core ethos points, I think, for ASUS and definitively for ROG is is trying to always be conscious, I think, of the end user experience. And it sounds cliche, right? You know, what something like a marketing person would say. But I think it is really kind of genuinely our focus and why there's been so many kind of situations year after year where we really try to look at how we can improve upon the experience, how we can refine the designs. And how we can give users, I think, you know, a better overall uh, PC build, you know, that's really what we're trying to achieve. And, um, you know, thankfully, I think we've been really successful at that. And you, you, you can really see that if you kind of look year to year to year to year, you can see the refinement and the improvement in you know, everything from small functional elements, right, to the design attributes of the motherboards to, um, you know, the bigger and more specialized features and functions, which might not be only complimentary to enthusiasts, um, but, you know, they're there, right?
1: Right, right. Um. And I, I'm going to bring this up first because it's the question everybody wants to talk about. Even though uh, I think there are some reasonable uh, answers to everything, but uh, a lot of people are like, "Why is Z690? Why are the Z690 boards so expensive?" I think the these boards are probably four to five hundred dollars, with all the bells and whistles. Can you tell us what sort of uh, driving those costs up and? Do you think yeah, so, it's it is a, you know Do you think really that tricky. perception um, is true?
2: Yeah, well I mean definitely unquestionably, you know, the board stack, um there are boards that are very expensive and some of the boards I think might be the most expensive boards that we've ever released, right? We're in an interesting time when it comes to, I think, uh, cost and production, right? I think everybody can, you know, be cognizant of the fact, right, that there are a lot of challenges right now in terms of being able to produce um, advanced, you know, um, computer centric componentry. Right. And so you, you have to kind of work within that framework, I think, is first right where we've seen pricing um, move upwards just because of the reality of the current kind of market conditions that we're in. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, our product stack right now literally goes from two hundred and nineteen if we only talk about ATX baseboards, boards um, all the way up to two thousand um, dollars. So that is a pretty big <laughs> swing. Right. Um, but that that does mean that I think that we have really tried to make sure that the kind of the the budget that aligns with what your kind of goal is in terms of your build and what you're trying to achieve, you're going to have kind of stepping stones to be able to go with. I think 2.19 for a platform that is introducing a brand new microarchitecture from Intel, um, that is only going to be a DDR4-based board but still is giving you PCI Gen 5. You're going to have the optional support for Thunderbolt You know, you're getting USB 3.0 Gen 2x2. Um, You're getting all those other kind of high speed and kind of important specifications that the chipset is bringing along with it. And a very solid board. Uh, I think Patrick might have the Dash P board and he could show it to you guys, which is the board that I'm referring to. So it's not like we're talking, I think, like a board that, you know, is super limited or going to be hampered in terms of its overclocking potential or things like that, right? Um, But as we move into the higher stack of the boards with something like I've got here with like the Maximus Z six ninety hero, um, or you know, what you're doing that what you've got there with the ProArt board, sure, you are gonna be stepping into four or five, you know, six hundred dollars in terms of some of these board costs. But you know, you've got, I think, also look at some of the, the higher end specifications that bring higher end cost, right? So you're going to have things like, um, you know, the latest generation of uh, wireless connectivity with Wi-Fi 6E. You're going to have Thunderbolt not be an optional, like, adding component, but it'll come natively on uh, the motherboard, right? The The hero comes with this kind of crazy cool... M.2, and I think you got this in your test bed. It comes with a PCIe Gen 5 M.2 hyper adding card, right? That's included inside the box, right? Um, and there's a lot of other kind of really small things that you may not realize, right? Whether it's you know the improvements in the power componentry or the bigger heat sinks, even like material costs. It sounds kind of crazy, but um, we developed an entirely new kind of material process for the RGB illumination shroud, right? Because a lot of users want their boards to look cool. They want them to look different. That brings a higher end cost than this literally having a basic piece of plastic. So, you know, when we add all those things up, um, yeah, it, it does increase the cost, but we also think that we're really trying to give you the most that
1: we can for what you're paying,
2: especially if you look at the kind of the total, I think, bundle of what you get with the board.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny, just looking at the ProR, you're you're getting 10 gigi, which is, I, I don't know whose ASIC it is, but you know it's it, it's not free. You, you've got the USB 3.2, you've got the Thunderbolt, it, it, and Wi Fi 6E. I mean, it's just sort of like every every single feature tick off that you get adds adds up to the price, right? And and, and even
2: it, even even small things like there's it's like little things that people don't even realize like um to do like our ai cooling tech right not you know we're getting get into that but there's like even specialized then auxiliary microcontrollers or specialized ic's that might not be on these more than entry boards that give you some specialized feature or function that also have to be baked on and and some of those things are a little bit harder to kind of immediately quantify or put in like a a comparison chart because it doesn't show up like the same way that you might see the number of m.2 slots or the same number of sata ports right or the number of even usb ports um, but there is an associated cost to put it onto the board right it just might be something you're not literally seeing right um and even basic things like uh you know the board the pro art board that you've got there you'll notice every single m.2 slot on the board has an m.2 heatsink that's also then more material cost right because literally there's also more metal to cover every single slot right so um plus also high uh, there are um uh, 12th gen and higher core count CPUs have also trended board costs and PCB cost to be higher because you're seeing higher layer counts. So in the past, you might've seen more boards that might've been like four layer boards, which were lower cost. You almost won't see that anymore. Almost everything is minimum like six layers or even eight layers. Then there might be things like our, our stack cool three, which is, you know, integration of copper in those layers um, because we want to actually have better thermal dissipation for essentially the, the socket temperature and for overall loads that are being placed because you now have to account for, you know, 20 threads, 30 threads, you know, you're dealing with just so much more uh, powerful platforms that you kind of have to build a platform accordingly on the motherboard side, right, to be able to really ensure a a good experience. So in in some ways, like the older platforms, um, just because they weren't necessarily built to having to have so much um, underlying requirements, right, you you were able to be a little bit more conservative in terms of how you approach board design, right?
1: Yeah, you know, and and I I think... When I think back to the early motherboards, again going back to the old days, I remember the first ones where, you know, the VRMs were just exposed, right? Then you then people started to throw heat pipes on there, then they started to throw a heat pipe with a little bit of aluminum and they just started to stack more and more stuff on there. And I don't know if it was engineered, the amount of engineering resources went into it, you know, twenty years ago as as what's going um. into today, right? um i don 't I mean I think definitely for r g it was because that's that 's been
2: definitely a focus, and I mean you can definitely find examples of you know the deluxe series and, and other models that we have from that time where you had higher end things but I think there's just there was limit limitations as far as um, the extent of what was the expectation from the consumer right in every single kind of small way uh, let 's look at another example, even something like on a on a motherboard right. If you remember Gordon, we were the first ones to do like the integrated IO shield right on the motherboard that released on the Rampage 10 Black Edition, right? Um, but now that has become like an enthusiast requirement. So therefore, you've now increased the lowest common denominator cost to say, if I make a motherboard, I kind of have to have now this integrated IO shield where before it didn't even exist, right? So that's for now a minimum cost. RGB, whether you like it or whether you don't like it, it's become an industry standard and a trend. So that means we have to have an RGB, you know, IC and controller built onto the motherboard along with all the headers and the additional trace paths to power all those headers, right? That adds then, you know, more cost. So that's the thing is that the spec that the enthusiasts and I think the DIY community wants has only continued to scale upwards. It's it's not necessarily gotten less, right? We're only seeing we want more and more and more, um, which presents a challenge in terms of trying to keep your uh, board costs, you know, essentially static, right? Right. In some other places, you can kind of just transplant things, but you're keeping the relative spec static. But it's a little bit more of a challenge in boards because I think what we see is that in the DIY space specifically – People want more. So, you know, in terms of being able to give more, we, we, we can put more, but that does come at a cost, right? But that's the reason why we have segmentation, right? You know, that's why we do literally offer. I think in this lineup, we've got something like almost 20 motherboards within the uh, Z690 platform. Wow, and That would include micro ATX as well and okay. micro and mini, but that, that's a lot of boards.
1: And so the follow-up question to all the pricey concerns, and frankly, I know you can't answer it, but I have to ask because people want to hear it asked. When is the B-Series, assuming it will be called B-Series, when is there going to be a, 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 a more entry-level price point chipset set up for those people? You can't, can't comment right. on that you know i just say you know make sure to keep it tuned i'm sure you're going to
2: find out as soon as uh you know they're available on the full nerd right <laughs> <laughs> that you can find out and asus will definitely have a requisite portfolio when it comes to that but um at least you know what i tell people is you know take a look at the product page you, you might be surprised because i think that uh, from a review perspective and i know that this got talked about in your previous kind of launch day coverage a lot of the reviewers of course were getting sampled you know like the the a high-end enthusiast baseboards like a maximus class board right but that doesn't mean that they are not other boards, again, within the lineup, right? Like, I love this Dash A Prime board, and this is 299 And this really is going to – this gives you DDR5. It gives you PCI Gen 5. It has an optional Thunderbolt 4 header. It's going to have 2.5 gig LAN. It's going to have PCI Gen 5. It supports four M.2 SSDs. It has the S21220 audio codec. I mean, it's got, you know, three ARGB headers. I mean, it, it's got just about everything really an enthusiast could ask for before you start to get into more niche specialized technologies, right? right. So I, I do think that all things considered, um, the, the pricing is, you know, definitely it's expensive, but we are talking about a premier enthusiast platform, right? I mean, this is this is contending and in some ways even better than current HED platforms, right? <laughs> so, you know, you got to kind of balance out the, the cost uh, model, right, in relation to that.
1: Yeah. You know, the, the funny thing is, I know people are somewhat radioactive about um, prices of everything now, but you know, in the, in the early 2000s, an enthusiast class, you know, motherboard was 230 bucks. That was yeah. 20 years ago. I, I bet if I should do this, I bet if you add inflation onto it, it might be about 300 dollars, right? So, I mean, I, I obviously the thing that's interesting now is. <laughs> Is there really an appetite for two thousand dollar motherboards and five hundred dollar motherboards? It's really there because people. I think they always go like, "You're making these and no one's buying them." But is yeah, well, I,
2: I can tell you, right day one, all you got to do is you know go into our community spaces, go into Build a PC, go into Battle Stations, and you're, you're already seeing right now day one, right? Like we sold out day one of the Maximus Hero. We sold out day one of the Formula Board. Right? Um, you know, the, it, it, it's not maybe the answer that everybody wants to hear. But I try to tell people it's like, you know, you don't think with another person's wallet. Right. And that's the reality is that everybody has kind of a different bias and want. Right. Um, There's nothing wrong. Like I said, I love something like the dash P and the dash A. And I really talk to our team a lot of times to really try to maximize the designs from a quote, 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 value perspective. But at the same time, something like the glacial we had for years, the extreme water cooling community be like, we want a board that's top to bottom been you know, entirely water-cooled, right, with the best absolutely design that you can possibly put forth on a motherboard, right? And we were like, okay. Um, thankfully, Asus, I mean, we're the biggest board manufacturer in the world. We hoard a very big part of the market share. So we're in a unique position to be able to serve niches um, as part of the product portfolio, if that makes sense, right? You know, because we can make a board that's designed for a very large amount of users, but we can also design boards that are more targeted to just, let's say, if you're just purely a water-cooling enthusiast that cares about visuals, well, we've got something like a formula board or we've got something like, you know, a, a glacial board for you. So mm-hmm. that's, what I think, a cool, cool position to be in. Uh,
0: I do have a couple uh, good follow-up questions from the chat. Uh, if you have them, uh, get them in now and at me uh, for sure. Yep. Uh, we have a friend of the show, uh, Tech Tech Potato, Dr. Ian Cutris. Uh, hey, is Ian. He's here, and uh, he has a question. Uh, well many questions but the first one is uh why did strix go from budget entry to premium
2: um i don't think for our perspective we never saw it as kind of being budget entry right um the main kind of strategy with strix when it was introduced right was actually kind of restructuring the product portfolio where before gordon and ian i'm sure will remember this right where we actually used to have more models within the like quote unquote the classic asu series so we had like the uh prime we had the dash a but we also had like a pro model and then we had an evo model and then we even had a deluxe model and we even used to have a premium model that on occasion would come out so the stack actually for that model kind of uh continue to scale up um and we still have the deluxe but you only see it generally within the HED, uh, HDT platform, um, as opposed to kind of, let's say, quote unquote, the mainstream based platform. Um, And ultimately, what we saw is a lot of people wanting more gaming options. And they, you know, they were kind of critical to say, we'd love to see ROG, but at a lower cost. But part of what we can achieve with ROG requires the higher cost, um, you know, because we're putting in the best designs. We're trying to put in the most innovative things. So. That's why we introduced a Strix, um, and but it wasn't necessarily kind of our entry. We even had for a small period a, a segment that we called ASUS Pro Gaming, and that disappeared very quickly. Um, and now, actually, what has become our entry is uh, Tough Gaming. So um, that is this, this series. And Patrick, I think you might have an image of the pro, uh, the Tough Gaming board. This yes. one's got an Cooler on it, but um, that's kind of like the way that our current part product mix works, right, is that Tough Gaming sits at the entry uh, with the kind of the lowest price point, then we move into ROG Strix, and then we move into ROG Maximus um, being kind of
1: our highest sensors I have one last uh, sort of business related question, and just it's um, <clears throat> again, in the old days, there were, you know, Asus probably had like six motherboards at a launch, different designs now, right? Now it's uh, you know, I mean, but now it feels like it's crazy to think like there's just I I can't believe the variations and motherboards. And what's rather than it seems like it would make sense just to sort of simplify the lineup. But what's the strategy? And this isn't, of course, only only you, but everybody has like 85 motherboards. Now, what why, why are there so many variations that that are offered? Um. I think, actually, it's been this way for for a pretty good amount of time. I mean, if we take a look at most
2: product portfolios, um, excluding, I think, HED, which is not not like normal, right? But if we talk about mainstream, for, for a reasonable amount of time, generally, the product stack has at least usually been between about, I'd say, 12 to 15 motherboards, and it can scale beyond that. Here... Um, we were in an interesting situation that we had to, I think, go with even more because the, the platform afforded you the flexibility to go with DDR4 and DDR5. And so we were conscious to try to be able to tie in both. But um, aesthetics really can't actually be discounted here. Um, there's a lot of what drives people in terms of their kind of initial kind of knee-jerk reaction at looking at a board outside of generalized specs like the number of USB ports or M.2 slots or the rear I.O. connectivity is even the aesthetic elements of a board. So you've now had to kind of have even multiple SKUs where, okay, I've got my classic like monochrome series, right? But then I might have to have something like a white variant model, right? That's adding in, um, you know, more permutations into the mix. Um, And then similarly, like we talked about where you have targeted niches, you might have, you know, things where uh, do you have the resources and time to be able to commit to developing a a more specialized mini ITX SKU or micro ATX SKU, which we might not necessarily always do, but there is kind of always this underlying kind of demand for some of these options, right? Um, And so it just kind of comes down to the bandwidth and, you know, the kind of the demand, what what we expect for kind of a certain platform. Um, I think with this being one of these platforms where you're talking brand new brand new micro architecture, DDR5 PCI gen 5 right next ge- next generation IO pretty much across the board for USB and thunderbolt we said we want to try to go as big as we can because we think that people are going to be super excited about this platform so we want to try to have as many choices as possible
1: right and this is a, you want to go no, 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 I I just have a suggestion and I I most people I don't know if this is something but a lot of people are posers. I know everybody thinks everybody's <laughs> pouring liquid nitrogen all over the motherboard and doing crazy stuff. But you bring up a good point. Fashion, I bet if you ask everyone, fashion is 90% of what drives them to buy a motherboard, right? You buy a Gundam motherboard because it's got Gundam style or whatever. I, what? But I just kind of wonder, like, could you make, like, a really low-end board, like, stripped-of-parts, bottom and VRM, but then you just stack all kinds of fake looking heat sinks and RGB on there to, to make it like, so that you can get the $140 price, but it looks like a $500 motherboard. It's for the you posers know, I, I like me. You,
2: yeah. Well, I, I think actually if you take a look at, um, the entry series in the last couple of generations, right? Look at B550 boards, look at, you know, the previous H series from Intel, right? And, and uh, H and B series. I think you had some very quote unquote good looking boards, yeah. right? That were at lower prices. The problem is it's just, it tends to not be within the relative kind of purview of a lot of the media and even kind of the online, um, you know, video community to look at those products because it's not usually what kind of gets sampled and focused on. Right. Right. But are there options that if you just want something that just looks cool, accessible at a lower price point, and especially if you're not somebody that's overclocking, I'm like, yeah, you know, like a great example of this, and even right now it still exists, is something like a 10, you know, 400 app. It's a great CPU part, right? It's not expensive. You could throw that in a B or an H series board, you know, Put a basic, you know, decent, you know, 240 millimeter IO on there, which you wouldn't need because you could do <laughs> a, just a basic, nice black power heatsink like a Hyper 212 or something like that. And you could have a cool look stealth out black build that just looks nice, right? Mm-hmm. Um so I think the options are there. Um and we are trying to look at modular elements on how how users could customize, maybe at different price points. But um <laughs> it gets really hard because this is something that's also really challenging in the industry that we face a lot, is that there is this Almost expectation that generation to generation, you have to redesign everything. You have to make it look different Um, in some spaces. We kind of respect and um, even applaud design continuity and consistency. Right. Like in cars, you see this to some degree where a silhouette or a design can hold for sometimes like half a decade, a decade. Right. Right tell me that that would exist in motherboards we've tried to do that and i think we've done it maybe better than any board vendor where we've maintained an evolutionary pursuit as far as how we approach design but there is kind of an expectation and that makes it really challenging to also take what you've spent in terms of design tooling production and so many of these things and um uh not have to kind of reinvent the whole wheel when you produce the new version of that that makes
0: sense well i, I got a good question uh let kind of follow up that from the chat uh metal core uh has a question uh with all the material and production limitations has asus uh started considering uh, alternative materials for building all of its components
2: yeah, we uh, we actually have. We've had some really interesting discussions internally with the team. We've looked at actually different types of uh, PLA composite materials that are, you know, actually based off of not um, petroleum-based derivatives. So even things like, you know, you've got, um, you know, plant-based, like I said, PLA-based uh, plastic composites. The challenge is one is the uh, – economy of scale of some of these items right in terms of being able to get them there's also even certification compliances where you have to meet certain kind of fire class ratings whether those materials have gone through those certifications Um, there's even also yield uh, yield and kind of uniformity issues that you have to account for so sometimes some of these other items the way they've been designed is maybe they have like when you go through the production process there might be inherent um i don't want to say defects but the user might perceive them to be a defect right they might be kind of be irregularities that exist in the pattern or in the finish but when somebody gets a board they expect that to be like beautiful right like every single thing looks symmetrically clean or that white should match like even in the moonlight white designs that we did for some of the new boards you know we took super amount of effort to do cross consistency yield checks on the white between the white on the graphics card to the motherboard to the cooler to other components and um that presents a lot of challenges. when you're also trying to go through different material uh, excuse me different materials uh, that are being implemented but um, that actually was one of the driving ethos is specifically for z690 is using different textures and different materials so there's things like even uh fabric uh on this board here uh you'll actually see like there's this little fabric tie that's on the board which is like this integrated little like uh cable wrap and that was kind of like a, a concept of saying can we start to introduce other types of materials onto the board that are not just you know plastics or metals and we've been testing around with that concept and we've been doing that actually for a while even the thing of like there were boards and now we take this common place where the io shroud is now cut, blocked over but that was also started by Rog, right that was thinking in three axes for a motherboard design so yes to your point we, we are definitely looking at other things as far as whether you're going to see anything in the immediate future i'm going to probably say no but it doesn't necessarily mean that we're not looking at it now.
1: Um, I'd like to ask some cool ass motherboard features because we got these motherboards. I, there's really, uh, I, I did all my testing on the, uh, the hero. I, one of the things that kind of immediately got me was like, Hey, the, the, um, the mounts. It looks like you have sort of a hybrid combo mount for that. So it'll work with 11.5X and it'll work with the new uh, LGA 1700 mount. <clears throat> Is that going to be in all the boards? And yep. is that recommended that you because a lot of for people who don't know, if you're going to build an Alder Lake box, you need a, either a new cooler or at least a new mount for that CPU uh, to make it work. If you buy one of these Asus boards, it, it'll work with your 1150 uh, 5X cooler right
2: yeah so so there are a couple of little things to keep in mind there right um it's not the first time we've done this we actually have done this in the past where we've actually done dual mounting holes and you know to clarify what you know kind of gordon's talking about here if i give you guys you guys are seeing me on the second shot here but the mounting holes, what he's referring to right here on your board right here, um, you essentially have 1700 and then you have 1200. So what that essentially means is that you can go and you can mount your older, you know, 1200 base cooler on there. But the tricky part to this, right, is that um, the newer core CPUs, there's a different actually Z height, right? They're actually not the same exact Z height in terms of the socket. And so there are some considerations depending on the way that the bracket is designed along with the uh my AIO cooler over there, but between the AI, uh, the IHS, right? So that base. So you kind of have to account potentially for that. And so what we tell people is we see it as kind of like an interim option. Since almost every cooler uh, manufacturer, including us for our AIO coolers, is, is supporting essentially 1,700 brackets, we think it's like a way that, hey, if you're in a pinch, if you've got your pre-existing cooler, you want to get up and running, right? You can use this as an intermediate option, right? To get your system posted, test, if it works and you've got good thermal performance, hey, you can entirely use that, right? But um, it's not necessarily going to be the most optimal, right? Because you're not purely account you're not accounting for that z height differential, where that's why the reason is you have that bracket. Um, but in terms of kind of surface area coverage, the vast majority of AIOs, regardless of the bracket, make coverage for both of the existing CPU
1: generations. So that's not
2: generally the issue. It's more so that you have to account for the z height.
1: Mm-hmm. No, that's, uh, that's a good point, but it's, it's cool that you can just sort of get it up and running and if it works, you know, exactly. Yeah. That that was our kind of mantra is just, you know, we
2: realized that there was going to be a challenging kind of, uh, Process right for people that either were going to upgrade or even if they were buying items in the marketplace, right? They could buy a cooler right now and it's not going to come with the bracket. So then they need to order it. And what we know is that many users sometimes they just don't want to wait. So just being able to kind of take open the box, be able to mount everything up, you know, get in the UEFI, install Windows, you know, be able to use the system. And like I said, if it works great and maybe what you see is a delta of like, you know, 10 or 15 degrees under gaming load, But we're talking like 65 degrees versus 80 degrees. Like, it's not a big deal. So, you know, you can you can wait and you can kind of ultimately decide, do I want to get the bracket or, you know, do I need to get the bracket? Right.
1: Right. Right. Uh, You know, if you could switch back to that overhead view of that, I I want to talk about, of course, the most exciting innovation in this generation is not uh, even the CPU, but it's the little button here. Is that the same button? Yeah. So this guy right here. (laughs) People are like, Oh my but, yeah. god, why didn't anybody have that before? Well, actually, can you explain what that does.
0: <laughs> yeah, actually uh if I I can uh we, we have Falcon Northwest in the chat. Uh it says Q release the best feature ever.
2: Oh, fantastic. Oh, man. Kelt, I love you, man. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for the, for the kudos there. So, yeah, the, I mean, the big thing that we did here, which is kind of cool, is we do this thing called Asus Q Design, which a lot of these things, Gordon, you've seen these for years, right? Like when we did Q Design, which was like the Q connector for like your front LEDs. Yep. Then we did, of course, QLED on the motherboard, which were your diagnostic LEDs uh, for showing, you know, like CPU, DRAM, graphics, boot device, there was the Q latch that was on memory, which was a single-sided latch mechanism. The last generation, I know a lot of people, maybe some people don't know about this one, but oh, you yeah. have the that 2 right, yep. where you've got, of two. course, the, uh, the, the Q latch mechanism right here, right, where there's it's a tool list based design. But the new thing that we did for this generation is we integrated, essentially, a mechanism to eject the graphics card. So I think I've got a card here, let me show you. If I put in the card, It's going to lock into place here, right? And so normally right now, if I try to remove it, right, pull it out, I can't get it out. And normally you'd be in a situation that if you have your cooler and everything installed, it's kind of tricky to hit this little eject button, right? But now all I need to do is just hold down this button and I can pull out the graphics card. So um, the cool thing too, and, and when we speak about, I think, you know, cost on motherboards, um, in the past if we take for instance like something like the integrated IO shield which when we launched originally was only on one motherboard right it was on the Rampage edition 10 which i think that board at launch i think was over, it was uh, it was over $500 for sure it was maybe like 6, six 650 or 699 or something like that it might have even been maybe a little bit more cuz it had some included accessories but the point being is that that Q release it's on all the ROG Strix boards right? So it's not even like on just Maximus, right? Our high end kind of series. So I think that's kind of cool that we tried to kind of give this kind of cool feature to a a broader set of users, right? So even something like on the Dash A, which this is our DDR4 model, you get the Q release design. But if you, of course, move up to something like a formula board or a Maximus board or an extreme board, you're also going to get that design.
1: And, you know, again, the the Q latch is awesome. um, But how hard is it to get an idea like that pushed through? I I mean, because you would think like, I know how management is all the time. They're like, you know, whatever. Are you asking for one more thing. Is it how? <laughs> um, I mean, because I'll that's say, a cool actually, feature, right? Yeah, um, actually, I'll say at least for the
2: ROG team, especially for us, um, that it's not really like the, I, I, you know, I've been with the company now for 15 years, and I'm really lucky to be able to say that I've almost never been in a situation where the ideas have been rebuked, um, right? It's much more of like, what is the practical execution ability if we can, if we can do it right in a, in a, in a reasonable way. Right. Um, within not only kind of a a functionality standpoint, a consistency standpoint, because even this design, we've been thinking about it for a while, but we went through a couple of different permutations because we had to figure out how could we make sure the serviceability and the reliability was really good, right? Because it's not like you wanted to use it like two times and then it would break, right? So you have to kind of go through enough reliability (laughs) testing to kind of figure that out. And that might take you a while. Um, And that's been true for a lot of design elements that we've done from things like the you know, the, the Q release design to even things like our AIOC technology or USB BIOS flashback, you know, isolated audio design, even things like the formula board with the integrated water block design, right? These are all kind of things that started off as an idea. But I don't want to say that they're too hard. Um, and at least for us, because the product stack is deep enough, um, it's easy enough for it to kind of allow that. That's the reason why we have the higher end boards, right? Is specifically because we're actually always trying to look for, how can we make the experiences better, even if it's limited to the high-end space? Because it will ultimately benefit other users across the segment, because it, you know, it trick, it does trickle down, right? You know, like again, I give the example of like the USB boss flashback, integrated I uh, in uh, isolated audio, and integrated IO shield. All those things started off on high-end ROG boards, and now you're finding them on you know entry-level motherboards.
1: Um, <clears throat>
0: nice. So, I, oh, actually, real quick, I, I do have a couple super chats uh, I want to get to. Thank you so much. Uh, but before that, I do want to mention uh, that this episode is sponsored by Avast. Thank you so much to Avast for sponsoring the Full Nerd. We have a live build coming up uh, tomorrow. You should definitely tune in for that. Uh, I'm excited for it. It's been a while since we did a live build. And, uh, yeah, if, if you didn't know... Uh, Avast has, uh, the best protection yet with Avast One. Uh, you get free things, including, uh, free antivirus, free VPN, free firewall protection, things like that, where a premium version has even more advanced protection, uh, to keep your system safe. You're, investing in, in all this awesome ASUS gear. You want to keep it safe. You want to keep it secure. So, uh, learn more about Avast One at Avast.com. Thank you so much. Uh, our first super chat, uh, is actually, uh, $15, not a question, just a, a comment for, for JJ uh from mike quinton thank you so much said uh please banish those uh tinfoil io shields i'll pay i'll pay extra for this also please add uh, m.2 snap on as i keep losing those micro screws so you know everyone's uh got features they want um and then uh, we we have a five dollars super chat from Simping from Gordon, uh, or sim- Simping for Gordon, our, uh, our our friend VC Chester said, uh, uh, for Elena and me, when is the industry going to all agree on a single standardized connector for the front panel?
1: that's ever- a
2: that's, a, that's a long one. I wish I could give you a good answer for that. Uh, you know,
1: are we there though? Uh, I mean, are not we there? I mean, and I I I've given. You folks a lot of grief over that because you're the last holdouts because everybody had kind of gone to the Intel front panel connector And then now you use a standard Intel front connector on on the uh, is but I mean I guess there's still some boards that are not standard. I, I just am amazed that they're not Yeah, you know um
2: it's just, you know, kind of one of those things, you know, I think consistency within board design. Sometimes there are kind of these oversights. I don't want to say they're oversights, but there are kind of holdovers, right? That when you kind of go approaching, uh, when you kind of design certain things, they become kind of um, fixed markers for the way the designs move forward. And sometimes it requires kind of a full stop and a reevaluation from kind of top to bottom to sometimes see some of these minor things get revised or changed. Like I'll give you a good example of this was – um, early, maybe about 10 years ago, I remember having a discussion with our team where I saw that there was a trend change in terms of kind of chassis design and layout. And I said, we need to be very conscious of making sure that we're oriented like all our uh, connectors to not be mechanically obstructed. Because, Gordon, I'm sure you remember like things like SATA ports. You used to have SATA ports that were like vertically Uh, They were essentially they were straight up. Right. And so then it was like, no, there needs to be a new design rule that you essentially always need to adhere to mechanical compliance so that if you put in the graphics card, it can't ever obstruct that. Right. So it has Mm -hmm. to be in the right angle. So there are things like this that sometimes when they get um, indoctrinated. Right. In terms of the design philosophy, they kind of become holdovers almost like vestiges in a weird, in a weird way and so you sometimes do have to kind of go back and and, and revisit the discussion and saying you know is this something that we still think makes sense or, or or can we really go about kind of um you know tweaking it or changing it
1: you know and i think it's it's also because that was uh, that was another mind-blowing you know the right angle sata connectors was like oh my god why didn't you think of this before that was like mind-blowing when it came out but sure enough at a, on a high-end system, you know, 10 years ago, it was mandatory, but if you're running some low-end system where they're not going to be running, you know, a, a massive GPU, you really didn't have and to And Then have, it wasn't an issue. Right? Exactly. It wasn't, yep. so mm-hmm. I guess I'd sort of like the front panel connectors, probably only on some, you know, boards, uh, you know, in limited markets or smaller markets maybe, you know, and they're not, you know, $800 motherboards, so.
2: Yeah, there there is also – it's a, a challenge, I mean, again, us being kind of a, a true worldwide global manufacturer, right? You do also have to count that some users um – you should be aware, right? Th- things can be different in other parts of the world, right? There are different regions, right? So there are sometimes going to be, and you see this in in any company that makes worldwide products. This is something that sometimes might be produced for, let's say, Japan, or might be produced for Germany, or that might be produced for, you know, the Chinese market it could actually have a very different design, right? And it could have different requirements that might be specific to that marketplace, right? Um, and because of that, sometimes you can still see things that might hold over or work in that space, but if it kind of does. Get Cross and rolled out still in another region that other region might be like why are we seeing this it doesn't apply to me right
1: yeah uh so i i have another motherboard question um this i and i was careful but on on the uh hero board it has this little i don't know, silicone or rubber strip on the uh the lever the load lever Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. You noticed that? Yeah, but I was like, do I take that off or do I leave that on? I, I want to know the official answer from me. From, o- from official answer is actually we put that on purpose. You might
2: find it funny, but uh, what people are actually, uh, what Gordon here is talking about, and it's, again, it's on actually the vast majority of the boards, is that right here there is uh, this little protector. And we put it actually on the retention lever on this bar. And the main reason why we put it on the bar is because there were people that were bothered by the fact that when this bar would come back and it would hit this top portion, it could nick slightly the anodizing of the heatsink. sink. So um, to allow for it to not nick that, we uh, put that on there. So uh, we recommend that you keep it on. But you don't have to keep it on. You can take it off if you'd like.
1: Okay, because I was like, because I had another board that I, I didn't use that didn't have it from a, a different brand. I was like, maybe this is some secret performance thing they have. I don't, I don't know what it does, but I better leave it in place. But then wait, maybe it's just some shipping thing. <laughs> like, I just can't believe. Well, I guess if you if you've paid, you know, for a beautiful motherboard you don't want to you don't want to have it scratch so i guess yeah that makes it's, sense. it's
2: a little bit um on the hero it's a little bit more noticeable because the the hero has this really nice black right matte kind of um anodization right to the heatsink, and so if you were to nick it you'll notice kind of a little bit more of that silver on the board that i showed it to you on because the the heatsink is already silver you, you, even if there was like a little scratch you might not even notice it right so i think it's just like i said some users and that's again just something that we're trying to be mindful of right as far as like okay People had feedback on that. How can we, you know, make that a little bit better? So, yes, uh, it, it is okay to keep it on there. <laughs>
1: okay. uh, so another question, because I, I want to get a little bit about, like, hmm. I was kind of interested in, in the design choices. But on, on the Hero, if I remember right, it used an, an AS Media SATA controller, didn't it? What? I'm sorry, can you repeat that? I, I thought it, uh, for the on the Hero board, it didn't use the. It used a different controller for the SATA. I don't think it was an Intel controller, right?
2: No. There's no supplemental um, SATA-based controller that's on there uh, as far as for for SATA-based kind of interfacing, right? I mean, we've got auxiliary controllers for, of course, you know, gets into tricky things. Like this one does use a USB audio codec, right? So that's not inherently kind of tied into... A base kind of uh implementation right but no, not know there's no mo- most of the auxiliary controls you're going to have there are going to generally be from you know uh audio and networking and things like that but it, as media does still get used for different types of supplemental let's say usb controllers right or there could be um maybe um specialized kind of multiplexing kind of solutions that you put on there to, you know, matrix out hubs, right, for more kind of USB ports. That's generally not going to be more common on, 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 I'd say,
1: boards for this generation, but, you know, it has been used in the past. But it did feel like there were fewer SATA ports on that particular board, and even, even oh, on, yeah, on that sure. board. Oh, um, yeah, par-
2: yeah, pur- purposely, that was a conscious choice. So when we actually went into Z690, we ran um, community polling in, in a number of spaces over about like a, I'd say about like a, a 16-month period to kind of get a sense of how many people. I mean, we we could, of course, look at market trend data. We could, uh, you know, get with all our channel partners and e-tailers and, and actually, um, uh, n- you know, nan providers and storage providers and ask them, you know, what their cell numbers were. But we also generally also ask the community, what are you interested in? And so what we were seeing is that there was kind of this... Um, you know, change that was coming in where a lot of users were prioritizing M.2 base being their upgrade path for storage. And they were kind of pushing out traditional two and a half inch SATA based solutions. So in the past where you might have seen many motherboards that might have like six, eight, 10, 12 SATA ports, we purposely went in the other direction. So like on the minimum side, on the most entry, it's at least three, but pretty much on all of our even fairly entry, right? So that dash P board that I talked about earlier on, that's four SATA ports. And pretty much above that, it's either going to be four all the way up to five M.2 SSDs on the entirety of the lineup. Um, And you have to kind of offset that. So we have kind of moved from using potentially SATA and then moved into implementing more M.2 because that's where we see users want that type of expansion option.
1: Yeah. I mean, it just feels like we can start backing off. You don't need eight SATA ports like 15 years ago, and four feels like that's plenty for most Mm. people these days, Mm. almost. Yeah, yeah. Even you know, at it, it depends. End, right? We still we, we
2: still do have users that um you know they're predominantly I'd say in a little bit kind of more that prosumer and professional space. So you, you've got boards like the ProArt where we're at least keeping um you know six um and, and some of the other solutions. Um, even recently with our X570, we also have eight that's on there. So we, we have tried to keep that because we still do have users that do run kind of large complex array solutions. Um, but even within that, again, you know you're, you're seeing these options where like you have you know we make. Like a Hyper M.2 card, which gives you four M.2 SATA, uh, SATA slots, right? So that's also kind of another option that people are looking at, right, when they're talking about adding in stat, uh, adding in more storage, right?
1: Right, and actually that M.2 cards is, is a great thing to talk about because um, there is no there's no direct connect PCI five um, for M.2 on any of the motherboards, right? It's all it's all no um, um, uh, no. Uh, we do actually have
2: boards that do have directly. Now oh, that is a very big. Right. There is a big segmentation point depending on uh, the boards that you look at. So for um, anything essentially below the uh, Strix Z uh, Z690-E, the-E dash actually does have PCI Gen 5 slot and a PCI Gen 5 M.2 slot that's actually hard on the motherboard. From there, when you move up, all Maximus boards will give you some form of PCI Gen 5 M.2. Uh, but it could either be done through a physical slot or it could be done through uh, the included adding card. Oh, but okay. that is kind of one of the segmentational differences, right? Um, and the reason why we did it that way is because it does add more cost, right? When Anytime you move the PCI Gen spec up. Right. So going from three to four to five, this even gets back to cost. You've added complexity to the actual signal paths um, into the layout design because the tolerances have to even be tighter. And they're they're actually just more stringent requirements because you're talking about super high levels of bandwidth. So um, it adds more complexity to the board design. There's more switching that's involved. There's a lot of kind of design elements that you have to put into it. Hmm. Um, But, yeah, that is something important. And you make a really good point there that if you're interested in adopting into z690 is kind of like a future platform and you want potentially both pci gen 5 and um pci gen 5 m.2 support make sure that the board states that you're going to get support for both of those uh, interfaces because yeah. not all boards will
1: yeah and i, I was kind of wondering because i was like looking at this pro art and i was like hey all all, all of the m.2s are or gen 4 on the pro art i think so at least they're labeled that so although this one over here on this side is not labeled but so I guess it maybe there's an adding card in the box. I haven't gone through the box on this exact. No, not for the pro art. There's no adding card for the this. Pro just, art. It's just simply not a, it, 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 again, it, it's probably not one of those things. Somebody's going to run, I guess.
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's again, it's just kind of a, a balancing act in terms of, you know, us looking at that, the adoption rate that we generally see, although, you know, you could definitely say that somebody in the professional community would be actually running, um, a workload environment that could actually benefit because, you know, you're talking about people that could be capturing, you know, 4K, raw, uncompressed, 12-bit video, 6K, 8K, you know, um, all that, right? So those are actually in the scenarios where you actually can leverage high-speed bandwidth. But generally, kind of from our experience, this, the highest level and the quickest level adoption tends to be kind of an enthusiast gaming segment. And whether they do it because they i noticing an appreciable benefit, or like you said, maybe it's because it's like kind of like a flex, right? They're doing it because, um, you know, I just 90%. want to have the, the fastest hardware. Um, we 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 have tried to spec the board to be in alignment with that, right?
1: Yeah, I people really can't underestimate the uh, I've got I I've got something better than you uh, feature, which is you know it's very real so i know people don't understand it so but it it is (laughs) very real well uh, i got a
0: good question from uh brad charkas uh he he sent me over some some questions ahead of time said uh demand for high-end versus mainstream boards how big of a slice is it um we're kind of a tricky company
2: to ask that for right i can't get into specific sales numbers but you know um ASUS has always historically been a premium board vendor. We've never been considered, quote unquote, the entry, right? So I think that in the fact that we've maintained our number one global share, right, for actually more than 15 years, I think it establishes that we've been very successful at selling across all of the segments that we position our boards in, right? Uh, With that being said, um, yeah, there is unquestionably massive volume that we see um, in both spaces, right? So like, perennially something like a maximus hero right or crosser eight here on the amd side is in a top selling it's literally selling out massive quantities right but equally um one of the best value boards that has been now around for a couple of generations is something like the tough gaming plus model right where that's you know on the x570 side that model has been number one ranked, you know, Amazon top seller consistently, and that's at a significantly lower price point than the Crosshair. But what we also see is it's two different sets of users, right? Um, the person that's adopting into that isn't necessarily looking to maybe do custom water cooling. They don't necessarily need a DAC that's built onto the motherboard. That you know, they're um, they're not looking for things like dynamic OC switchers so that they can do advanced PBO-based overclocks that are conditionally based on their load of you know single boost versus you know multi-threaded boost. Right? Right. Um, so, um, you know, ultimately, I think the best way to answer that is that we're, we see continued demand in both. Right. Which I think gets back to what, you know, Gordon was saying that, hey, you've got a lot of motherboards in this launch. And that's because we're seeing it from all ends. We want people that want as much value that they can get within a board that's like under 200, 225, 250 dollars. But we're also getting you know, the enthusiasts that are literally in that 450, 550, 700, you know, price band saying we want even more, right? We want more specialized designs. What can you do? Right. Uh, And we're not seeing a pushback there, right? We're literally, we're literally every generation. They're saying, can you do this instead? Can you add this? Right. Um, So, yeah.
1: Yeah. It's very interesting. It's very, it's been, it feels like it's been that way for a long time, very U shaped, you know, it's either high end or, or budget. It feels like that sort of the mid range is probably the it feels like a almost smaller part of the market than it's ever been before. So um I know it's been that way on cases before, but would you say that's not true? Yeah, the same I, for you? I don't know.
2: I mean, I think if you look at the overall kind of trend, right? The overall trend has moved up. It hasn't moved down, right? So as a, as an industry overall, right, because I think you've seen a refinement to the user base, right? I mean, if even if you go back ten years, you might have seen seen more and more users that might have been building a system not because they were inherently kind of passionate about the DIY platform, but maybe because they used it as a means to an end. But as other technologies have matured, become more prevalent, become more cost accessible with things like like smartphones, um, low cost laptops that can give you a lot of performance and great battery life, you've seen kind of um, those users maybe move away, right? And really at its core, now the PC DIY ecosystem is really based off of an enthusiast, regardless of whether they're a first time builder or they're like us and they've been doing it for literally decades they are an enthusiast they want something that looks cool that performs great and as a whole the cost of builds and the experience that people are looking to push is actually only become i'd say more premium it's 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 moved up because it is now being pursued as like a pursuit hobbyist now there's always going to be kind of weird segments of like people that are building these systems for professional purposes right as opposed to kind of like a a hobbyist um but at least i think that's that's the way that kind of we've seen that, that trend over
0: Nice. Uh, before we move away from, uh, motherboards, cause I know we have some other questions, uh, unrelated to that. We, I, I have a rapid fire list of questions for you, JJ. Uh, real quick, real deep dive nerdy stuff. Uh, Go so, for and, it. and most of them are from Dr. Ian Cutrus. Uh, the first one from, uh, from Tech Tech Potato. How many layers does the top ROG board have? Twelve? Uh, question mark. Uh, DDR5 require additional PC board layers due to signaling. Does it?
2: No, uh, there wasn't any kind of um, tweaking that needed to be done in that. Uh, we're actually even still evaluating actually memory topology. While well, we did implement similar t- trace design topology that we had in prior generations like the OptiMem, which had to do include with kind of shielding paths and some kind of other optimizations. Um, based on kind of what we're seeing, we're not necessarily seeing like a, a massive kind of improvement um, you know, from that in terms of readily benefiting ddr5 that might continue to kind of scale over time as you know as ddr5 matures but it's already been quite impressive in terms of what we've been able to realize i think within a first level launch of a platform i I don't think that memory scaling has ever been that strong on one platform within the first introduction especially of a new memory standard um comparatively in history um so that's that's quite impressive um as far as for the layer count i'd have to actually double check on the the extreme in the extreme glacial as far as what their layer count is so i'd have to get back to that
0: okay uh, next one is from flash photo other are, are the boards using t topology or daisy chaining to the memory traces
2: daisy chain um, is what we've focused on so um, that predominantly just comes from that there's an you know wh- where we see the best benefit right is that while the boards can readily have a great experience for running course two dim or four dim configurations um one of the key benefits inherently is just larger densities that you're natively going to be able to purchase off the bat with DDR5 right if we talk about DDR4 it started off with much lower densities that scaled over to densities of you know 16 32 gigabytes but DDR4 is effectively. I mean, excuse me. DDR5 is effectively starting at a minimum of 16 gigabytes. So, with that, running that type of density configuration and looking at what the majority of the market is going to purchase, uh, along with the frequencies that are going to be possible, um, you know, right now and, and and for the kind of foreseeable future, we think that the right kind of course of action is going with the daisy chain based topology.
1: So, pretty much all the Z690 boards are, are daisy in the whole lineup, or or some sort yep. of okay.
0: Uh, Dr. Ian Cutras also asks, uh, are there any PCIe 5.0 by eight by four by four configurations?
2: PC, I'm sorry. Can you repeat that PC eight, PCI
0: gen five, right? By, by eight by four by four,
2: eight by four by four. No, I don't believe, no, I don't believe so. Okay. Uh, well, uh, yeah. And that, that gets a little tricky. Like even things with like, um, SLI and multi-GPU, this has been really kind of tricky over the last couple of generations because since the changes that you've had with the market trends in terms of how GPU configurations are running, um, figuring out what is the right strategy to go with in terms of slot arrangement and expansion slots is one of the most challenging things to do from a board perspective because it's one of the most costly elements because you have to put in, of course, more signal paths, quick switches, a lot of things in terms of how you're managing board design, right? Um uh, but I think overall, what we see is you know is 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 prioritizing boards for one GPU. Um, you know, as we move up, for sure, multi GPU. So like you're going to see like on Maximus series boards, you will see which is rare, going to be on most most boards where you'll have dual uh, PCI Gen 5 uh, support, right, and two by 16, so the, um, by eight, by eight configurations being possible. But based on your product configuration, I just unless you can give me an example i don't know that i would see like a ready user configuration that would use that type of mix right as far as that kind of like slot layout um, cuz we're just not necessarily seeing that type of Ah, uh, user configuration, but that's <laughs> it's definitely one of the challenges right now that we have as okay. far as you know tr- trying to make everybody happy when it comes to slot layouts.
0: Maybe you can follow that up. Um, here we go. A uh, friend of the show, Ziv. It's a really good question. Who thought of the screwless, toolless M. dot two latching system, the Q latch? Uh, and can you find out and petition for them to get a raise?
2: <laughs> um, you know, some of the ideas that we have, is it's a combination of things. You know, we've got different people on different teams that kind of all simultaneously input different things, and then there's sometimes just refinement. So, um, you know, sometimes we'll get ideas that come from different individuals, might come from a consensus point in the community, like, hey, can you just make this easier? So when we did something like the actual Q release design, it's just because we had consistent feedback, like a number one point that we would see consistently from customer service is people that like, I don't have a precision tip screwdriver, or I don't have a magnetic tip and i've dropped the screw right or i've lost that screw or um i i don't even know where the standoff is we would literally get people that would contact us and tell us you know they would they would you know file a complaint saying oh you you sold a board that doesn't even have this because they didn't realize there was a little package inside the Mm -hmm. box that had the little standoff that they had to open up and mount Mm -hmm. right so we would get you know there would be internal feedback is can we make this better right is there a different way right and so a lot of these designs come through uh, i think just design thinking is what we try to apply and um, we definitely do have certain individuals i myself have contributed uh, many ideas over the years uh, but we have an amazing set of uh, you know r&d team which there there are some R&D guys that we have on our team that have literally been there for maybe 15 years that um, we, we have like the guy that invented the clear CMOS button on the motherboard is part of the R&D team. And he himself has multiple, <laughs> you know, design innovations to his name. Right. And that's one of the really most amazing things about working for Asus is you get to meet some of our engineering team who've come up with ideas that have now become industry standard. And um, it's humbling, to say the least
1: i mean just think about it before because you had to remember you had to run an external switch outside back and you'd have to push that external switch to to jumper it without going inside yeah or, or, you, whatever, but.
2: or you or you use a screwdriver and you would yeah you know, short your contacts or you get a jumper and then you put it onto the clear cmos pins right i mean yeah it's just there's all kinds of like super little things like that um that you know just over time we've imp- implemented but um Yeah, there's there's a we definitely do have certain 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 incentives that we do have as part of our R&D design team uh, for design wins. So, um, you know, outside of, of course, just the, you know, the the praise that, you know, they see from users, because I can tell you that when they do get to see that feedback from media and from users, it makes a difference. Um, You know, um, it doesn't get talked about a lot, but, you know, motherboard design, you know, there's literally tens of thousands of people hours that go into the design development for these boards. Um, Most of the time you're design and development timeline is probably somewhere between six to eight months. Um and it's a really, really, really huge amount of time that goes in through by extraordinary set of people um to, you know, bring you these end products. Um so I I, I always try to afford them, you know, the um, the acknowledgement that i think they deserve.
0: Well, uh, speaking of design, my my coworker Will Sly is uh, a big fan of the the Gundam collaboration that you had uh, we just built a, We've a got system got more coming. with them. Mother- oh. Oh. More collabs coming down the pipe. Oh, okay. Nice. Uh, we did have some questions about that. Uh we'll, we'll look forward to that. Um uh moving on, i had a question earlier from uh, Sipan Sibab uh asked uh, about uh adoption of the 12VO standard yeah so that's uh, that's a really interesting one um you know one the 12
2: vo standard right is first and foremost been targeted not necessarily for the pc diy industry right it was actually designed more for kind of the system integration industry and for kind of uh, odms that are producing products at scale right Um, diy systems kind of work a little bit differently because of the way that they're designed from an expansion standpoint there's also a lot of complexity because um, while the primary items that we do use heavily utilize 12-volt, right, there are specialized kind of onboard components that heavily utilize 3.3 and 5-volt that often get overlooked, whether we're talking about specialized microcontrollers that are built onto the boards, uh, VRMs. Um, there's a lot of subtleties components, and when you kind of try to… Want to implement this type of specification and you account for all these other things that are in play that you have to be designing against kind of like a, a, a time frame for, it can make it quite challenging. Um, so I don't know that necessarily, uh, I, I can tell you that I confirm that we have done um, essentially board sample development, right? And we've done essentially kind of proof of concept test designs. Um, we did even evaluate kind of looking at certain models and design and development during the Z490 and Z590 area of development. Um, but I think Right now, um, we see that the market is kind of a very, works really well when you're working with the adhered standards, which have been adopted by the community, right? Um, I think another good example of this is right, like what NVIDIA did with the, you know, the uh, power connector that you saw on their founders edition cards, right? Us as add-in partners, we did not utilize that design. And we went with the traditional, right, eight pin power connector, right? Even those three of them, let's say on like a high end card, like a Strix card. Um, part of that was also being conscious that users, they wouldn't have to go buy an adapter, right? They already had the power supplies that fit this. They had custom cables that they wanted to use. So, we're conscious of that um but you know we're a leading specification partner so we're going to continue to kind of look at the community we'll look at it and discuss with our partners and um you know when we think it makes the most sense we'll definitely be ready to be able to support products but nothing in terms of the immediate um i'd say immediate future especially in relation to z690
1: so you know atx12vo is is a a great jump off point to sort of get into the future of the pc and for people who don't know atx12vo is a intel developed spec that it offers a, a huge power savings for systems at idle and it was really addressed to to at scale at right? scale because, at very large because
2: yeah because the idle efficiency improvements if we really put it outside of a percentage in real right. world numbers which i think is what most
1: people look at you're probably talking maybe you know a few watts yeah right? like but I mean yeah, but to your point but i you know it's again it, it's something to basically make regulators happy right that to to make regulators happy but i i'm actually i i think it's a great idea eventually slowly implemented but i the as expected the resistance was like this is something new it's something different i'm never gonna throw away this power supply i bought 18 years ago and continue to use it, <laughs> it it's a good way to talk about sort of like the the concept stuff like i i am i really think Uh, We need to open the books up, and everybody needs to talk about ATX is is hurting us at this point. I think we need to look at improving it. Um, Can we talk about some of the stuff you have, like this Rog Avalon? Because this, yeah, so I think this is really interesting. So this is,
2: um, I think, Patrick, you might have the Avalon there. This is actually a concept that we showed off a little bit ago um, at a a, you know prior kind of show like in CS and Computex. So it's not the most recent example. I think one of our most recent concepts is. Utopia, and we've also got a Zeus concept in there. If you guys want to, you know, throw one of those up. Um, but I think the Avalon's really interesting. the The whole premise I think that we're seeing that's very interesting over the last couple of years is that um, when we go about motherboard design, one of the most challenging aspects has been trying to adhere design specifications to be in alignment with kind of the wants and needs of the community. A really good example of this is like when we had to design motherboards that required kind of an SLI or a CrossFire level of support, even though statistically we knew that you know, 90% of the market was running one graphics card, right? Um, And so when we designed something like the Avalon, we said, well, what about kind of making the end user experience easier? Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that this replaces every single proposed type of build experience the user could have, right? Here, we actually went with a consolidated form factor that was smaller than a traditional tower. You would still be able to have, you know, custom cooling configurations. You could have multiple drive array configurations, but there would be a lot of simplified interconnects that you – if you kind of broke away from design convention and said, "Do I have to do it this way? Can I go another route?" Like one of the interesting ones you'll see in an image there will be, um, let's say, like the modular I/O plane, right? Where we could actually customize the back I/O and we could remove the I/O. And if you wanted more USB ports, if you wanted 10 gig networking, if you wanted, you know, multiple display output configurations, you could actually change that. Or here in the front, you see that you've got these hot swap drives. This used to be a big thing back in the day. People having more hot swap drives, right? And we, re- we know in reality people like having that functionality. So why don't we actually re- more readily design our systems to be kind of adaptable to these type of experiences, right? Um, and, yeah, so here you can actually see the, uh, you know, the modular I.O. sections, which was something that we actually had planned for. Um, even the PSUs, right? There's a lot of, quote-unquote, excessive cables that you don't necessarily need to utilize, if you actually think about things kind of plugging in together. Um, so, you know, we had used edge connector-based designs for the PSU, where the PSU, there's there's no kind of cables you're plugging in. You literally just kind of plugs in directly into the motherboard, right? Um, and this is actually more efficient. It's a more simplified design. So there are what we feel are better ways to do it. The, the challenge has been is, is the community and the industry ready, right? Now, the argument to something like this would be, well, it's proprietary, right? Maybe ASUS is going to be the only one that does it. We don't necessarily think that's a negative thing, right? Because, again, we have a big product portfolio. It doesn't mean that we're changing every single product. But maybe if we make one or two motherboards that purposely say we're going to buck the trend and we're going to go with a different design approach, um, we can open ourselves up to more creative options, which might be simpler and easier, um, more beneficial to users as far as how they approach it. Because we do know there are pain points. like There are people that they're first-time builders, and they're like, where do I plug in these cables? And yes, you can go watch a video. You can go read a great guide, right? But could we just actually make it even simpler? And there's even things like this board doesn't introduce it, but um, you know we've had concepts in the past that have even integrated memory directly onto the motherboard, right? Um, even going similar like a laptop, statistically, while you have an open-socketed platform, there is arguments to be made about why not actually integrate the CPU directly on there. Statistically, users don't actually upgrade their CPU even on right. an open platform in the majority. It's actually in the conservative minority. Right. But we design purposely for that. Why not maybe make a board where it's like we could have optimized topology and layout where it's like it's guaranteed, right? Which is great because there's people that get systems. They put it all together. Maybe they damage the socket. Something gets installed wrong. There's some type of experience that's not great where... They could have bought it, and it could have been all integrated in, and they just slotted in, and they focused on the expandability of things that were relevant to them. You know, the GPU and the storage and, you know, other items like that, right? But
1: the pushback was, you know, because this this was a rumor before Broadwell came out that it was the end of sockets. I remember I had everyone from, you know, everybody in the community was up in arms that Intel was considering no longer offering. That was the, the rumor, right? Uh, offering yeah. uh, the socketed parts. People, they they went nuts over that because they're like, they have to have the socket of parts. But you're right. 80% of the people out there, 90%, honestly, never swap a CPU out. So there are huge advantages to having a direct-attached cpu with you know <laughs> some high speed soldered on ram rather than you know in a, in a yeah even thing.
2: even things like even having things like failover uh, guaranteed support you know we could be more optimized in terms of tuning specific to those ram modules right like interoperability challenges compatibility issues become a Kind of a, almost a thing of the past. And it doesn't mean that you couldn't still have upgradability. I mean, in a laptop, you can get memory that comes with the laptop, right? But you still can upgrade if you wanted more memory, right? Um, again, this is not to say that this is the what would serve every single enthusiast. Yeah. I wholeheartedly am a big advocate for really being able to define a system how you want. And we unquestionably want to continue to maintain that type of design perspective. But we are also trying to look at and saying – if we don't have to be constrained by this specific type of form factor, if we don't have to be constrained by this specific type of IO connector or this expectation for design, how can we approach giving you um, you know, something that is still truly an enthusiast class product, right? But presented in a way that you might find maybe even friendly, more accessible and easier to work with, right? Um, so I, I, that's one of, I think, really one of our internal goals and one of our, our strengths is because of, I think, our high level vertical integration. You know, we, we want to kind of pursue some of these options. And I think, you know, over time, um, that's where we've structured ourselves is to hopefully be able to offer this within some of our
1: product lines. Uh, Speaking of uh, somewhat proprietary, although it isn't, but coolers. So for this launch, I believe you had it before, but you have actually uh, direct support for a cooler and the retraining uh, for your your all-in-one coolers, right? You can go in and say, tell it to retrain for uh, a certain cooler. Do you oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh,
2: you might, uh, yeah. So I think what you might be referring to is like our AI. Um, well, we have two things. We have our AIOC technology and our AI um, cooling technology. But um, the cool thing, I guess, essentially about the way that our AIOC technology works, and there might be a slide, uh, um, Adam, if, if you can find it in the folder it says AIOC, um, but. What essentially we do is we monitor the CPU's temperature in real time, and it continually is essentially tracked. And what we do is actually irrelevant whether it's an ASUS cooler or, you know, you have an EK cooler, a Fantex cooler, an Actua cooler. It doesn't matter. Um, We will consistently track the temperature, and we then align that with the information based on the CPU that you have installed in the platform. And it will conditionally actually adjust uh, your operating kind of uh, overclock that you have. Um, And we can even make this also work on a more deep level with things like the way that you have your fans also connected to the system. Um, But it's pretty cool because why would we do something like that is because we've found situations where actually cooling can be affected by multiple factors over time. So an example is maybe you got like an AIO pump, maybe the pump inadvertently starts to go bad earlier ahead of time, right? Maybe like two years in. So the cooling performance gets uh, reduced. By it being reduced and us continually tracking it, we can actually reduce um, the actual operating parameters of the CPU part if, let's say, we have that AIOC enabled, right? Because we realize your cooling performance is no longer up here. It's actually down here, right? Um, So it's a pretty cool feature. It does actually require a hardware IC uh, built on the board. There's actually EP-ROM that we have to store the data in. So this is actually not just like a software thing. It's, it's a combination of hardware and firmware kind of all working in tandem. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a pretty cool feature that we do have on on quite a number of boards. But it is not limited to just AS- ASUS um, cooling solutions it does work with pretty much any cooling solution
1: it does but couldn't you see like well you know we are cooler we've designed it we sort of we've been working with these this team and we we could effectively be better than a, a, a third party right isn't that
2: uh yeah I, I think our perspective in terms of when we um Approached to integrating coolers because for a long time, right, we, we didn't have cooler options and now we do have a, you know, very big lineup. You know, we've got, you know, 240 millimeter AOs, we've got 360 millimeter AOs. Um, you know, we we're the first to actually come out with integrated screens on AOs. I think that's our kind of focus is more so how do we help to align our product to complement kind of the designs of what we have within our motherboard because the reality is at least from, you know, like something like an AO, um, you know, the vast majority of partners are using the same inherent pumps, right? So You know, from a performance perspective, they're going to be pretty similar. So our goal is how can we help to, you know, look at the the other details within the experience of how the user integrates that into their system, um, you know, to have it maybe operate in in a way that they see more seamless. So that might happen in our software. Right. Or like we've got our ROG Armory Crate software suite, which. I think, yeah, it's more convenient because I have one hub that will literally control my cooler, my motherboard, my fans, all in one central repository, right? And I don't know if that gets into your <laughs> your RGB question, but I think that's the way we at least see it is It's kind of more holistic, right? Sure. That, um, you know we can help to ensure i guess a better experience when you're paired together but at the same time we always want to be respectful of not only our partners but user's choice right we want to make sure that people can can right. go with the parts that they want to use
1: you want to make people buy it because it is essentially better because of the closer integration but you want to be open it does feel like that is the path we have to 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 take to go forward because you know there i think there's a lot of pressure to integrate everything right so that kind of goes against everything the PC has stood for since its existence but
2: um yeah i mean i i, I think i think users, right, uh, this has been an interesting thing over the years, right, especially with ROG, where we went from making one product to now we almost make everything kind of under the sun when it comes to kind of components, right? I think our goal has always been trying to make sure that if we do offer a product within that space, it has strong enough merits that you would want to pick it. And it just happens to be that we also have, I think, a very strong and passionate Community of users that love our branding and our designs and our products. But I think most users will generally also say that if they pick that component, it's because they did feel that there was inherent performance or design attributes that were complementary. They didn't just buy it purely because it was like, it was that Asus ROG version of that product. Although we do have fans that I can't tell you do do that. They're like, I want that ROG cooler just because it's the ROG cooler.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. No, I mean, there's something again, you know, I, you can't understate it. Fashion fashion matters clearly. So if everything matches and you're just going to do it, that's, that's, it's like RGB, right? You, I really hate some systems where I have to have like six different, uh, applications just to manage the RGB. So.
2: Yeah. And that's a really interesting one. Cause I know that I was like one of your questions as far as, you know, why can't we have kind of something consolidated, right? Um, from our perspective, we feel that we actually do right. Because we use, standardized pin heading uh, spin pin headers right it's either a three pin or a four pin and we work with any partner that utilizes those interfaces right so that could be everybody from asca to you know thermal take the fantex the ek right um cooler master they all make products that directly interface with us and it's all seamless within one application the challenge though that sometimes people forget when you talk about something like rgb is one it's only actually been around for a fairly short time. You know, we were the first board vendor to put out, I think an RGB enabled product. Um, it gets around to what I think late 2016, 2017, but even within that time frame, there's been a lot of change because you went from literally a non addressable or non digital era to then a digital era. And what some people don't necessarily realize is that as you've actually scaled the complexity of integrations of RGB, you've also had to enable support for all those products. So like This becomes really challenging because consider for the fact we like backported our RG Crate software all the way to even first gen boards that actually had different versions of the Aura RGB controller, which are only uh, standard RGB and not digital. Right. That becomes really complicated because all of a sudden now you have to make your code work with essentially kind of like the lowest common denominator. And how does that work if I then have a motherboard that has non addressable lighting, but then I put in a graphics card later that has addressable lighting that then also has memory that is addressable, but then I'm adding something else that's a different value, and I have to all make that work together. So an open standard is inherently super complex, and this is why there is some value to what some partners do. This is not Asus's uh, philosophy, but some partners that do use their fixed controllers, right, where if you get something from some partner where it's got their cooler, their fans and their thing, and it all goes into some node or some hub, right. That you're using. The benefit is that you kind of have locked the code and the, the requirements to be specifically for that microcontroller. Right. Um, and if you look at even open community initiatives, initiatives like OpenRGB, you'll see the challenges. It's super complex because different people have different microcontrollers that are being used, different layout policies, different configurations. So, um, This kind of want to essentially have this standard, it becomes very tricky because the reality is that you can't necessarily have it unless everybody was using the same exact component, if that kind of makes sense, right? right? Um, And that's – at least right now, I I don't think that's necessarily realistic, especially based on the demand of what users want, right? Because users want even more – control, or they want more types of presets, or they want even faster sequencing performance for their LEDs, so then that means all of a sudden you've got to come out with new things, and comparatively, even if you look at other ecosystems in the consumer world, right, um, those RGB ecosystems aren't interconnected, right, Um, you know, like Govee doesn't work with Philips Hue, right, like if I buy into either one I buy into that respective, you know, RGB lighting ecosystem. Right,
1: and then the classic is we're we're clearly still in the innovation phase where everybody is pushing new features, new things, new new and standards, open standards that everybody adheres to tend to slow everything down it slows down innovation unfortunately right so that's yeah yeah
2: it it, well that's that it actually it it becomes very tricky even that you nailed it on the head there right so i think that's the reason why you see some partners that when they decided to roll out their rgb ecosystems are like the best way for us to do it is to lock everything into you know our controller and our software and our platform right um but also there's a balancing act too of also being realistic that not everybody is adopting to adopting into everything at the same time right so like there is merit to sometimes those closed ecosystems where what happens if i have like an x x299 motherboard an x99 and i wanted to add rgb lighting there's no headers there's no lighting control that's built in there right so how do i add that well i'm gonna have to go with some type of device that i add in to be able to enable that type of control right um but at least from our end you know we're 100 committed to maintaining what, what we have measured as, as far as what we feel to be the largest rgb ecosystem of partnerships that exist in the industry and when we account for that every product line that we have has rgb right from laptops to (laughs) desktops phones (laughs) routers monitors peripherals coolers motherboards right all of it um you know we're we're going to continue to work with our partners to try to give the best synergy we can and we have also extended you know open api partnerships to um you know to the community right to try to develop but um that also requires time and commitment resources right and so it, it's it's a process right
1: and there aren't unlimited resources <laughs> adam i am stealing all the time here do we no, have yeah
0: i got, I got a couple great questions going back to the uh, uafi um we have a five dollar super chat from uh, simping for gordon again uh do you have ai do your aios control fan speed based on water temperatures or cpu temperatures i've become a lover of water temp based fan curves
2: yeah, so water temp is, uh, I think, a great choice, right? It's more sensible as far as having an option when you talk about um, not having kind of the CPU be super kind of oscillating back and forth, that kind of responding back and forth, you know, on, on CPU cores, especially as you're getting to so many cores now in CPUs. Um, there are different options that you can actually set for the CPU input temperate, like, excuse me, for the CPU input source uh, within our coolers. So that is part of kind of like our software suite and our firmware suite. So you can go in and you can actually define um different input sources and then of course you can go in and you can customize different elements as far as the the responsiveness of the curve and and make further requirements excuse me further adjustments to that
0: okay uh also brad sharkis has another good question that i pulled from his list uh what's the difference between asus uh, enhanced memory profile and normal xmp
2: oh oh man uh, kudos thanks for bringing that up um yeah so um this was kind of like, I don't want to say it's like a workaround, but what we realized is essentially with DDR5, um, there was going to be essentially uh, two kind of sets of kits that were going to exist on the market, right? So you were going to have XMP-enabled kits that were going to be available, but there was also going to be a large amount of kits that were being produced that didn't actually have an XMP-based profile. And so with AMP, it's essentially an ASUS-based design that allows us to essentially circumvent Um, some of the defined limits for that memory. So I think on this board, actually, yeah, this one, I have it right here. This is some non-XMP4800 DDR5. So with AMP, you can essentially go in, and we have essentially conditioned profiles that have been um, essentially aligned with the different types of ICs and and, and, uh, NAND that's available for those memory to be able to essentially bump up the frequency. So overclock it, um, which is it's a little bit i don't want to say more challenging but there are more factors to uh, to, to account for in ddr5 because of the pmic and things along those lines so this essentially just allows the user to go like hey Maybe I can't get this XMP kit of memory, so right now I can buy this 4800 kit, but if I wanted to maybe run it at you know 5400, or if I maybe wanted to run it at 58, or I wanted to run it at 6 gigahertz, right, I can use that AAMP function and essentially be able to overclock my memory easily based off an ASUS profile. Now, AMP will not work for an XMP-based kit. It has to be for a non-XMP-based module. Um, For XMP-based modules, you would still kind of go through your traditional kind of overclocking options, or you could also look at some of our specialized memory presets, which we have on some boards like ROG series boards. So in short, it's essentially a specialized set of overclocking presets for non xmp modules
0: oh well actually a a follow-up from uh, brad's list Uh, i'm going to keep going with brad Uh, how important is it to use officially supported memory kits Uh, once memory standard is very supported it's not a huge deal except for the bleeding edge but is it true at the beginning of a new gen like ddr5 um i I
2: actually it's not i mean uh, if you go by the qvl list um, we've actually historically almost always been the number one validated partner right and ddr5 we have more ddr5 kits validated by us if you take a look at the xmp defined kit and that's the same thing for ddr4 asus holds the number one spot on there but um, just because a kit isn't on the qvl list doesn't mean that it's not going to work in most situations it will where sometimes users make i'd say a misstep um, and this was more common on ddr4 but it potentially could be uh, possible again on ddr5 is when you mix kits of memory so an example of this is let's say i have two DIMMs, right? And then I buy essentially two sets of those DIMMs. So I'm buying a total of four DIMMs, right? And what I've done is I bought two sets of the same memory. The problem then when some users will attempt to go and apply an XMP-based profile is that XMP profile which was written and validated for two DIMs, right? no longer will necessarily work on that four dims and that's because you've changed excuse me you've changed many of the characteristics right the load is entirely different um, some of the sub timings have to be different so there are parameters that it might have to be tweaked now we do do um, internal auto rules and kind of optimizations to try to account for this because we know users will do this so there is kind of logic that we built in to try to make sure that the end user experience is hopefully smoother that even if they do do that It will attempt to try to work. Um, But that's the main thing that I will tell people just kind of be mindful of. Even if you don't necessarily see the kit on the QVL, you're going to generally be okay. Um, The only other note that I'll make to this without getting super into the weeds on this, but it is an important point, is overclocked frequencies are dependent on three factors. Um, The CPU Uh, the motherboard, and the DRAM itself. And oftentimes people forget the CPU as far as being a limiting factor. So what I mean by that is the CPU has a a memory controller that's built into it, um, and the memory controller will define the dividers, so the speeds that can be supported, but it doesn't guarantee those speeds can be supported. Um, So an example of that like on DDR4 would be Yes, you could have speeds, let's say, over 3,200 megahertz, right? You could have 36, you could have 37, 33, you could have 4,000, right? But eventually, as you continue to increase the scaling, there would be a certain percentage of CPUs that could not hit that frequency. Even if you bought like a 4,800 kit of memory, it was validated, it runs at that. The motherboard says it ran at 4,800 megahertz. Your CPU could be the limiting factor because it it doesn't have a memory controller strong enough to run at it. It's very similar, kind of like overclocking frequency where people kind of understand that there's a a limitation not every cpu can hit the same frequency there's that same associated frequency with the memory controller um i will say though and now because we can talk about it because the performance embargo is up um the memory controller for alder lake is absolutely stunning we're almost seeing almost the vast majority of almost all cpus are hitting six six gigahertz um so that's Again, this is where when people are kind of making comparisons between DDR4 and DDR5, this is absolutely stunning that you have a memory controller in the first iteration that is guaranteeing you at a minimum 4,800 megahertz, pure stock, right? That's not even the name XMP, where on uh, DDR4, Gordon brought this up in the past, you have to set an overclock profile to get any speed over that. Anything over 3,200 on Intel AMD is an overclocked frequency. It's not even guaranteed it can be supported and through overclocking, but it's not guaranteed. 4,800 is your new guaranteed baseline. And it's super exciting to me as an enthusiast. You're literally telling me that just about every CPU is going to be able to get up to six
1: gigahertz. I'm like, that's pretty awesome. Right. Yeah. So I, I am, um, I actually had a problem with one kit that I got early on DDR five, just, you know, could barely get into the OS or run anything before it would blow up on its XMP profile. Mm-hmm. What, so in that case, because what happens? Who Whose responsibility is it to fix that, I guess? Because, I mean, as you said, it could be maybe my 12900K was just like, wasn't, but I had well, other I, I think probably I the, the kits, other kits that you got, to, unless you got something super high speed, it probably wasn't a limiting factor
2: of the CPU. Um, what I can tell you is that some reviewers, they could run into a little bit more issues because you're on the literally on the bleeding edge. A lot of the kits, like even my kit right here that I have, This looks like a mass production kit, but many of the kits that uh, I think reviewers were getting were technically almost marginal. They were like PBT samples. So sometimes some of the um, the programming for the XMP profile, it might still need a little bit of kind of fine like mass production tweaking. Right. Um, And we found an example that I, I won't say the specific kit in question, but I had an example of like when I did my own testing that what I found is if I used um, one of the XMP profiles, the board actually wouldn't post. But when I looked at it more closely, what actually was is that the actual written information was actually asking for an incorrect voltage um, characteristic. And I don't know if that was your case. Like if you actually go in and you load the XMP profile, but you go and maybe check, let's say, like the um, voltage that was being defined, was it like 1.1 or it's like 1.25? And then what we find is that's actually like an errata bug. And Mm -hmm. to to your point, how does that get fixed? If let's say that did happen in a mass production module... More often than not, it's easier for the board vendor to just kind of be the one that fixes it than the manufacturer kind of fixing their their profile, if that makes sense. So what we tend to end up usually doing is that we will write kind of like just a a code update right in our auto rules and we'll compensate for that so essentially if that module gets detected right we'll we'll rework it and then essentially once it gets inserted we'll make that adjustment even though that adjustment that it was originally entering in is in it's, it's an invalid parameter right or we know that it's causing an issue we'll just go in and we'll fix it oh. um then and one last point to that also is that that's also the reason why in our uvfi sometimes you'll, you'll see like profile one or profile two because when the board designer excuse me when the Uh, memory manufacturers are validating their memory, it's not that they're working, I'd say, from the lowest common denominator, but they do kind of have to try to make sure that that memory profile works on a wide set of boards, right? For us, if, let's say, we do extra work to really kind of fine-tune our memory topology and we can get better signaling performance and we know that we can actually run the memory a little bit tighter, right, or a little bit better, um, that's why we will sometimes, you'll see an option that says, hey, do you want to run this XMP with ASUS presets versus the pure uh you know x and p profile and the reason why we do that is because we kind of know hey we have this a little bit of extra kind of fine-tuning headroom that we've put into the board design so if you want to get a little bit more enable this right um sure it's you know it's more of a synthetic difference i'll say in most situations as far as like you'd have to go into like ada and run like a benchmark to to see the difference but you know for the users that want to get absolute most from the system it's you know it's an option Mm
1: -hmm. and and, but uh, i mean it's good to know basically uh, as as uh, modules mature as everything matures you'll basically get these updates with a, a new ufi right Yeah, correct. Yeah. All the user would have to do
2: is exactly is just update the UEFI and you can help to check this information. We do do uh, we have built in a lot of logic into the motherboards for this generation and we have for the last couple of generations like. All of the Z690 motherboards, they come with an SPD tool. Um, So the SPD tool will actually allow you to go in and check the actual specific information for your memory module. So you can actually see, is it SK Hynix? Is it Micron? Is it Samsung? What's the actual production information? What's the entire XMP table? So you can know all that information if you you need it for reference, right? Um, You could then, of course, screenshot it within the screenshot function that we have in the UEFI, and even a really cool thing is not on all our boards, but... Many of our enthusiast boards, uh, ROG Strix, Maximus Class, they all have MemTest built into the UEFI too, which is nice as well. So, you know, you can – we've tried to kind of make it seamless where I can put in the memory, enable a profile, and then if I even want to, I can jump straight into MemTest, run a benchmark, test its throughput, and then actually check to make sure that all the modules are, you know, stable and reliable and working without issue. Um, but, yeah, um, you know, I also tell people that you, you don't necessarily feel like you should have to update the UEFI with an initial platform launch, um, but – I generally tell most users that are on the enthusiast side of adoption within the first three months is be be a, be considerate of looking in, you know, armory crate tool or going to our support site and see if there's been a UEFI release, because um, sometimes there can be even new feature enhancements that come out. This happened last time with Z590, where things like the ABT technology that Intel had, it wasn't released at launch. It came in a in a in a um, uh, excuse me, um a post-launch UEFI update. And same thing like here, we're even making t- tweaks to the AIOC technology where we're going to be enabling thermal, thermal velocity boost in addition to our AIOC in an upcoming UEFI release, which isn't part of our, our launch UEFI builds. Um, but usually I'd say by about three months in, um, at that point, you, you shouldn't kind of have the expectation that you need to kind of keep, quote-unquote, updating, right? Like right. if you want to kind of stay on that build indefinitely,
1: you should generally be fine. I imagine a dynamic memory, uh, tuning will come as well as an update right because that wasn't rolled yeah
2: and I, that's going to be an interesting one i think to be to be honest right uh we see dynamic memory tuning being more applicable i think for the laptop um side of the market right because hmm. if you talk about its its inherent benefits it's really about kind of efficiency and power and again what we see is kind of a hallmark on the desktop audience side is that they kind of always want that power on tap. Right. So I think for most users, they would be in a situation. Why would I want my memory to down clock? It's a really cool. I think it's, it's a great feature. Right. Um, but, uh, I think, as far as kind of the merits of it, I think most people that will probably see the most value in it or, or benefit from it will be in the, in in uh-huh. laptops as opposed to in desktops.
1: I was wondering if, because although I know that the the frequency can change, I don't necessarily know if the timing can be changed dynamically. But my thought was, you could, you know, have low latency in games that need the latency, and then some games yeah. that need the memory bandwidth. You just crank those clocks. So I don't know if the- Yeah,
2: no. Um well, you know, that's interesting that you bring that point up because that type of technology is actually something that we worked on very closely with Intel to even define for, let's say, uh the CPU. Because technically with the CPU, you can do these type of things already with things like app pairing, right? Um we offered it in a program that we call Turbo App and Intel offers it also in XTU. But I think that what you generally find is that most users don't um Spend the time to kind of conditionally go in and kind of fine-tune their system to that degree right because right now you could do it technically you could code your system to run that when like I open up my browser right. I like Edge now. I, I don't use Chrome, but let's what? say you're still on that Chrome oh, bandwagon.
1: Yeah. Good for you. <laughs> well, you won't be able to choose anymore. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: although I do like a lot of what Mozilla and Opera is doing uh, too, but anyways, right? You can you can tune your browser to run at pure stock because while you could see uplifts by using you know the fastest speeds and even overclocking it or whatever, let's just say you're like I'm running my browser. I don't need to be overclocked. Why not just run it stock? You could do that, and then when you open up. Lightroom, you could have your uh, Lightroom overclock be conditionally threaded to maximize just that kind of more lightly threaded kind of coding nature that Lightroom is, is known for, right? And then the opposite side in Premiere, where Premiere will you know benefit um, you know from additional uh, cores and threads, right? But we don't see a lot of people actually doing that, even though you have that option right now. Um, part of that is we think that it's also – it is time consuming and complicated. So, you know, we're, we're hoping internally, maybe, you know, through coordination with Intel um, and even AMD, because some of these things could g- apply on actually both platforms is trying to add maybe machine learning um, algorithms on, on our end and, and mapping those out so that in some type of utility like Army Crate, you could just like scan your system, right? Where it would like, we see that you have Adobe Creative Cloud. Right. You've enabled AIoC. Would you also now to like to apply our m- machine learning profile overclocks So then, where it we'll would dynamically actually shift that over, right? Um, um, but who knows? You know, there's also interesting stuff that Intel is doing with that thread director. You know, the thread director can actually be updated via MEI firmware, oh. right? So. You know, there's kind of this uh, I I can't speak for Intel. Right. But in theory, if they want to continue to fine tune the way that the balancing architecture works between the P and the E cores over time, as they see kind of usage scenarios occur and um, certain developers maybe take advantage of certain types of code paths that are being implemented and things like that, they could actually update you know, the UEFI, which would come then along with, you know, a firmware for the CPU, right? And then that could change actually some of those things too, right? So that's also one of the interesting things that I think they're kind of trying to do there with the the Thread Director.
0: Wow. Nice. Uh, I do have a couple questions before we get out of here. I know maybe, uh, Gordon, you have a couple. Uh, The last one from Brad is uh, ROG True Volition. Talk about that a bit. What is it? How useful is it? How how useful Uh, is it at a practical level?
2: yeah um well i i think uh they're they're a little bit exclusive right um i think adam for for people you actually might be able to find a an image in there in the in the the file set that i gave you that actually yep. should be for the r g uh, volition but essentially um The long and short of it is this is an evolution of something that we call differential Dysense monitoring. So differential Dysense monitoring is already on boards like the Maximus Hero, and it was essentially um, a hardware-based implementation that allowed for more accurate and responsive measurement of things like vCore. Because what we know, a lot of overclockers are always trying to kind of fine-tune their their overclocking pursuits to maximize efficiency, right? They don't want to to give more than they need if they can really try to dial things in. Um, But... Even within that implementation, we realize that there are limitations because the CPUs have become so fast at how they dynamically swing in terms of kind of from idle to uh, load frequencies, right? And with the complexity of cores and so many other elements, you need really, really fast readouts. And this has really only been possible not even with like multimeters, but actually with like an oscilloscope. But most users don't have an oscilloscope and they're not going to know how to wire their motherboard to be able to make those readings. So what we did is, um, actually, oh, wait, I think I have it here. Hold on one second. I don't know if you pulled that picture out, Patrick, but I think yep. I might have.
1: The, the, uh, have the Armory Crate um, dashboard that shows, the, yep. uh, it looks like an oscilloscope.
2: But I think I got it in here.
1: Oh, wait, there's a video.
2: But it's a little module that plugs into the USB port, and it will allow you, yeah, I have it right here. I can show it here. One second. Excuse my live unboxing. (laughs)
0: Um,
2: But this little guy will essentially plug into a port, and it's kind of giving you like a USB-based oscilloscope. Um, And, you know, to his point as far as like saying, well, you know how does that apply for the real world user? It's not. I mean, the peop the the boards that come with this are going to be the extreme board and the apex board. So again, cater to I think somebody that really cares about kind of spending some time to get in the weeds, at really kind of fine tuning and kind of tweaking their system. But the benefit is inherently this is the little guy right here, and I can I can show it to you right here.
0: Uh,
2: I see right there.
0: Can you? Uh, yeah. Oh. Focus. Okay
2: there it goes yeah so it plugs into usb ports got these different readouts and then we have a piece of software the uh armory crate uh, dashboard which will actually give you the readout values and you can essentially have more you know you can have pretty much the most accurate form of monitoring right when it comes to seeing how the board is responding to these um uh you know voltages and and then kind of going in there and fine-tuning it so this is kind of one of those things again it uh it's going to be like a spec thing on the on the spec page but this is also why you get boards that are more expensive um why they're more expensive right is you know we have to literally develop this whole little specialized piece of hardware and the firmware and everything that goes along with that but um it's something that's really cool i think it's really it's it's pretty sweet
1: that is pretty cool (laughs) and and again i don't think most people would ever use it but Just to have it there to look cool, frankly, is, again, 80% the value of most things for most people.
2: Yeah, I think for, for most people, that's the reason why the differential uh, – uh, excuse me, the differential Dysense monitoring that we have on like the Maximus series boards in general, that is more, I think, a general enthusiast option because that you will actually directly see in your normal applications that you use for monitoring purposes, right? So um, all Maximus boards come with eight to 64. They come with a full one-year license that comes included with them. But if you didn't use that and you use something else like HW Info or if you used Armory Crate, which also now gives you full readout map values – the values that you're seeing are essentially going to be closer to what you, what are actually, um, occurring, right. As opposed to some of the fuzzy logic that sometimes gets applied and some of the conversion loss that occurs when you're using essentially a non differential sense monitoring implementation. Wow.
1: Cool stuff. You I, more I, questions, Gordon? I, I don't want to, I'm trying to think of like, cause I don't want to eat your whole day here because we could literally <laughs> sit here <laughs> all day I, I love it, and man, talk, man. but, um, what do you think? I'm trying to think. What uh, first question? Uh, what if you could looking at this motherboard, got all this stuff practically legacy? What would you get? What would you get rid of from motherboards if you could? Like, what would be the best thing you would just love to like, just throw overboard that we just don't need anymore on a motherboard? But I know we can't get rid of because we need it. Wow, that's a uh... USB. <laughs> I mean, like. I mean, there's probably. I, oh.
2: that, that's hard because I think we've tried to do that on a lot of the later boards. Like we've tried to take away the vestiges of things that just don't have kind of any in, inherent kind of value. Um, there are some things, like I said, that I think for sure we could continue to improve upon. Right. Um, you know, that I think would be. Better approaches to how we implement things like we've done some interesting kind of concept designs with things like a. Uh, like special breakout modules and like um, using, you know, a singular actually like a fiber optic cable for like front IO connectivity, right? Where instead of having to have all these connectors, right, we just have one single connector that plugs into the board that then would plug into a chassis and everything routes through that, right? Mm. Um so I think where I'm more interested in seeing is like pushing things forward as opposed to necessarily saying, let me take something off the motherboard. Because there's not really anything like in the past where like you'd have these motherboards and we were still like, man, we still gotta put this one PCI slot because people <laughs> we got two people asking for a PCI slot on the motherboard, right? Um we've kind of gotten past that. So we don't really kind of have any, I think, of these like really poor vestiges um that you know people will um you know, uh, comment on. So I'm at the point of more of like, what is the cool stuff that I want to keep adding onto a motherboard that we haven't yet put on? Is 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 more the kind of the way that I look at it, right?
1: Because hmm. I it's funny because I the other day I was looking for a PCIe to PCI adapter. I, I haven't have really looked too hard at it, but it's like mm-hmm. I don't know why, but it's like you know maybe I should plug in an old PCI card. Just I just kind of <laughs> like when did we get rid of those? You know I don't remember that. Uh, you but for your optical idea, that would include your audio because I mean to me worst problem with you know people w- with front panel audio is people use them because you shouldn't because- <laughs> yeah actually to take that off cases that's yeah, what you should be doing my, my problem is people every case vendor is like that is like the the like the, the the thinnest wire in the world they can use and the yeah, least, no, less shielding they can use for audio. Yeah, so. you, you made a great point. Gordon, I think you got this
2: board, but if you remember, we tried to counter that, right? Like one of the RG boards that we came actually came with the, uh, with the um, Supreme Effects, actually, like Bay. Uh, device And actually had a specially bi-direction shielded cable that wired into the front HD audio header. Because when we did testing, we realized we're spending all this time to improve the onboard audio, but then you got this this weak link, right, (laughs) which is adding actually interference, right? And we've actually even done more testing, interesting enough, right, as now we're really starting to put really, really high-end, like, audio designs on motherboards. We're also seeing the trend that now we're actually getting – not yet, it's not 50 percent, but in some of our recent polling, we're seeing between 35 to 40 percent of users that are using pure USB-based listening devices. So it's Mm -hmm. like a USB-C headset um, or they're using even uh, USB speakers. So actually the analog path is irrelevant because they're not even using the onboard audio, right? Right. So, uh, you know, we're trying to look at like lots of different things, but, you know, that's the one balancing act of kind of like board design is you have to design, right, for kind of the minority in some ways, but you also have to try to adhere to the majority of what kind of people can balance and want to do. Um, A good example of this is with something like um, front USB, right, on all the higher end Maximus boards, they actually have quick charge 4.0. So they're the first boards to offer this technology like wired in for front panel powering right um and we ran some interesting again polling here to kind of see like what is people's interest in having like high speed charging through the front port some people are totally anti it some people don't even wire their front cables because they don't like to have to have the cables from a management standpoint some people go i only wire it in through the back i don't use the front and then some people like i totally use the front right and so some of these things are sometimes just like we kind of have to try it and we have to kind of see what the feedback is from kind of the community and oh. seeing do they find that spec kind of useful or valid to them. Um, we thought it was interesting way of adding, like I said, another premium point to the boards where most of now the high end phones on the market support uh, some form of fast speed charging, right? That's above, you know, traditional right. 15 Watts. So being able to have 60 Watts that you could output in terms of support, mm. it's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> whether or not people are going to use it, uh, you know, it, it'll interesting. It's very similar to the, the extreme board the extreme board is the first board that i know of that has thunderbolt 4 wired for the front header so you don't have it right now there's no chassis on the market that gives you thunderbolt 4 front connection but the board will be ready for it whether or not it's going to be one of those things that like a lot of people want you know we got to wait and see
0: speak speaking of something that's super cool and i know a lot of people who do want it that uh your partnership with Noctua for the, uh, the, the GPU. Ah. I, I, on our discord channel, we got a lot of people who are very excited about that. Uh, Hoping there's yeah, be that was, a, that was more. a
2: long time coming. We're really excited about continuing that. Um, Noctua has been a partner with us for a very long time. Um, they work with us on a lot of kind of design validation. And um, actually, our ROG Ryogen AIO coolers all come with Noctua IPPC fans. Um, so that was actually our first kind of collaboration. And then we created the Noctua 3070-based uh, graphics card, which then leveraged uh, kind of this de-shrouded concept and then used their fans. And um, I can't go into what we may or may not be working on, but I can tell you that this is just the beginning of a collaboration. And so we, we hope to be able to show some cooler stuff mm-hmm. off uh, at, you know, sometime in the future. Nice. Wow.
1: So much stuff. So
0: much, stuff. so much. Stuff. And anything else, Gordon, should I get to my last question? Yeah,
1: I, I just, I feels like the thing is there's so many features on these motherboards that it's, uh, you know, like 60 Watts to, to the front USB C, you know, header is that's, I mean, that's a crap load of wattage and, and the routing it takes to validate that and to run that to the front. So you can charge your phone or, or you could practically charge your laptop. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, watts, some right? of the
2: laptops are 65 watts. So, yeah. Uh, and again, some of these things are, are test concepts like, you know, Gordon, some I, I don't want to say that we were throwing things at the wall and trying it. Sometimes we generally do think that there's an alignment with kind of technologies, but sometimes it is a kind of wait and see. Like, um, I don't know if you remember when we had like deluxe series boards that actually shipped with. Qi wireless charging when there was literally only one Qi wireless charging um, phone on the market. So, like, we were ahead of the curve, right? Like, we were like, we think this is going to take the crowd by storm. And it took a really long time for wireless charging to kick off mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. and now it's become very ubiquitous there's actually in our polling again we've actually found that there's almost a 50 50 split there's the people that totally are hard line and want always the fastest but there's now kind of people that are like you know what i just put it on there and i let it charge and i kind of just do topping off right mm-hmm. and i just kind of keep topping it off over and over again um so you know uh, but you're all right is that uh, i think one of the biggest challenges that we have right now is a motherboard manufacturer and there's not a uh, a, a perfect way to resolve this issue to some degree is helping users really understand the depth of supplemental features and functions that exist, especially as you move into higher and tiers of boards, because a lot of what we base easy comparisons off will make the board seem effectively parody. Right. And there's also, you know, to, to you know, uh, to also be frank, there is also sometimes um, m- mismarketed information, right? Like when some people say, Oh, that, that board is meant for overclocking as opposed to this. And I'm like, that's also not the right way to phrase it necessarily, right? Like my tough gaming board effectively is going to give you the same overclocking experience as the Maximus Hero. It shouldn't be framed from the pure perspective that somehow this is the better overclocking board. It does have designs that will be beneficial to somebody that cares about overclocking. But fundamentally, the capability that we've designed is almost effectively parity. What you should really trying to be looking at is – what are the things that i appreciate do i want more usb ports do i care about um like on a rog board we have a temperature inlet and outlet and flow monitoring right for if you do like a custom water cooling setup Uh, a user asked about you know hey i love to be able to track that temperature in my AIO. users want to do that in custom water cooling systems normally to do that you'd have to have like a specialized external um you know uh Item to be able to do that, that you'd have to put onto your your fittings, right, and then wire that into your loop. But now that's built into the motherboard, right? Wow. But not everybody user, not every user needs that function, right? So that is kind of a tricky thing. Is how how do we make sure that users are aware of knowing the depth of all that? It is of course all detailed in the in the spec pages and everything like that, but it, it is uh, very challenging to have them understand like literally all the the stuff that comes in some of these products.
1: No, I agree. It's it's really overwhelming. So, but you know, I'm going to stop. Adam's going to ask his last question because we'll be here till like next, <laughs> yeah. next week. I've, I've got uh, one last uh, one last question. I'm sure you get this a lot, but uh,
0: going to have to clarify it here. Uh, Gutter ninety six asked earlier. Is it R O G or Rog?
2: Oh, that's a that's a great way to end this. It is R O G. It is not Rog. Yes.
0: Okay. Well, did, did, was it ever Rog, or did it, did was it change never at ROG. some point? Um, no? Okay.
2: This is, this is very much kind of like the Asus versus Asus. Um. Sometimes discussion point it is asus i always try to tell people kind of think about it like a and then like dr seuss hmm. it's the best way that i try to tell people think about the naming um but yeah i think the reason why is that we we say it rog because of course what it stands for is republic of gamers right so when you say rog right you've kind of you've eliminated the fact that there's actually a, it's an abbreviation right for essentially something that stands for something so um we do have users though that do say rog and at the end of the day, you know, that's that's fine. But if you want to say it the right way, it is R-O-G. Okay. I'm cool. glad
1: we got the correct pronunciation of the company in there, too, because that's, <laughs> that is really, like, that, that, that has been a problem for it 20 years, it, it feels like. <laughs> <laughs> it comes back every few years. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, cool. I'm going to take us out, Adam. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, very fun. Thank you for joining us. Uh Check back next week for your fix of PC Talk on The Full Nerd. For audio listeners, subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or Stitcher. Send questions and comments to the Nerd at PCWorld.com. And also, please do leave a comment if you're on one of those services. If you do, someone will actually say ROG instead of ROG and not an annoying JJ. Thanks for coming. I'm Gordon Ung with JJ from ASUS. Thanks, guys. And Adam Patrick Murray's going to hit the off switch.
0: JJ, it was great to have you here. Uh, hope to have you back uh, in person soon at some point. Uh, until then, we will see you later. Goodbye.